If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between him between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven." Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on, agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gained in, gathered in my name, there I am among them. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but seventy-seven times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold and his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, and seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, Pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. This is God's word. Thanks, Garrett, and I will simply add to that, now may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. So, yeah, we're doing, uh, we're doing this sermon series called Be Reconciled, and uh, one, of the, one of the premises of it is that actually reconciliation is, is a gift that we offer and can actually display uh, to a watching world. So, Similar to how we framed our last uh, sermon series around, you know, we're doing Alpha and we want to be able to kind of talk about uh, some of the things that, that, we, that we believe and the ways that we would evangelize and share our faith. Uh, this is actually tied to that in my mind in that one of the things that we offer is uh, a space in a community that can do what is difficult to do. And I think that's part of our witness to the world. So, um, so it's called Christians Get Mad. Um, today. So there you go. Christians get mad. Um, I got away. uh, My birthday was Monday. I got away for a little while um, and headed down to Bisbee, which is one of kind of my peaceful places. So I'm not a tourist there. Um, I've been there so many times. My family's from there. But I'm also not really known there. So I can go to a place I'm familiar with and just go to the coffee shop and nobody knows my name and read a book. So um, I'm ordering my coffee, settling in, book in hand, looking forward to just a a nice... uh, moment of peace, and the barista yells, like, call the police, and I turn around, and there's, uh, in the middle of the street in Bisbee, like, if you if you ever go there, there's kind of this one uh, key corner right by the library and the coffee shop, and uh, cars are stopped, and then the other lady says, he just hit him in the freaking face, and uh, anyway, there's this, all this stuff going on, middle fingers are in the air, yelling, chaos, cars are pulling off, everybody's getting out, and, um, and anyway, you, and I'm like, ah, and I don't love these moments. Uh, I, this is, there are some people that see that happening, and they run out there, and they're just like, let me at him, and I'm like, can we not, actually? I'd really rather this all just went away. So I'm, that's how I'm feeling. Like, let's, let's have this go away. And this guy emerges from the fray, clearly one of the, um, you know, deckers of the other, middle fingers in the air, and he is stomping, guess where, into the coffee shop, right? Here he comes, right at us. And I'm like, awesome. Yeah, this is going to be great. Um, 
yeah, that's not the scene I was hoping for, right? And uh, sometimes uh, stuff happens in life where it's like life gets disrupted, and it's not what we were hoping for. Uh, people get mad. Uh, emotion uh, can come into play. I don't know what happened. I think that the guy was crossing the crosswalk and a car didn't see him, and it just exploded from there. Because it made people literally, the, the, the guys left their cars in the road and got into this, um, into this confrontation. Um, so, you know, I, I want to look at that and say, thank goodness I'm a Christian, and we don't do that around here, right? <laughs> That's the world. <laughs> and then there's us, and it's great. Um, but whew, not always the case, right? Not always the case. Uh, I, I want to talk about, um, about anger a little bit, not, not as the key theme. I really, you know, Christians get mad. It's just, it's, it's clickbait, let's be honest. But um, we, we deal with emotion. We all uh, have it. And the call of this passage, if you think about it, Matthew 18, what it's saying is if you have an issue with this person, um, this is like step one, you go talk to them. If you have an issue with a person, what's, what's that mean? That means you are entering into conflict. Like we know, right, that if you have an issue with a person and you go and talk to them, the temperature here might actually go up, not down. Um, the potential is that this gets harder, not easier, right? That's why some of us don't want to do it because it, it feels like this is just going to get worse. And here it is in the Bible. Jesus is saying, if you have an issue with somebody, actually go to them, go in, get in there. That can be a little scary because it means you might experience some emotions. So I'm going to use anger as kind of an example, but I, but I really want us to, uh, to acknowledge here that, that there are a lot of emotions that you might fit. You might, you might go into one of these conflicts and end up really hurt. You might, you might come out very deeply sad. You might be deeply disappointed, right? You might go to somebody hoping for one thing and you get another. In fact, that happens a lot. So focusing on anger, but, but insert other emotions as needed. So why it's okay, why it's okay to feel emotions is one of my points tonight when it's a problem, what to do. And then uh, the next logical point, I thought, just to end it, is uh, what to expect when you're expecting. Um, <laughs> just thought I'd tie, you know, throw a, a parenthood, a mothering book in there. You'll see. We'll get there when we get there. So why it's okay when it's a problem, what to do, what to expect when you're expecting. So why it's okay. Um, it is okay to feel what we feel. I, I think we struggle with this. Um, our families, our culture, religious circles, often muddy the waters here. Using anger as an example, I've talked to many people, several of you even, about feeling, um, real, experiencing anger, but then feeling like I, I'm not supposed to. And so what do I do? I, I'm feeling anger. I'm not supposed to feel it. So what do I do? Um, Anger can come uh, from a lot of places. Uh, feeling it can be good. Um, it's kind of like pain. It tells you what hurts and where and ultimately why. Have you ever thought about that? A good experience of pain helps you not you know, move into more of what you can't handle. Have you ever, uh, have you ever gotten choya in your leg? Um, this, as a Tucsonan, right, is like, like I don't want to think about that. I've, I have had the choya in my leg, and I don't like it. And what, what happened, the first time, I remember as a kid, I, <laughs> the first time I remember doing this, I had a baseball bat, and I was like going to hit each little choya thing off the choya. This seemed like a good idea. So I'm like, yeah, home run, Ow! you know, and it like all sort of blew up, and it was all over me. And um, yeah, and I went running back to my friend's house with all this choya stuck in me, and the you know, their parent is like picking it out slow, you know, and then it turns and the other thing gets in your leg. So at some point you go, that hurt. I'm not going to pummel a choya cactus with a bat again. I never have. I've never done that <laughs> since. Um, sometimes we feel pain because things, are, things hurt and that's okay. Sometimes we feel anger because things hurt and, uh, and that's okay. 
Um, our scripture this evening, right, is from Matthew 18, though. And, and I want to first, before we dig really too much further into this, I want to tell you a little more about what's going on in Matthew 18. Um, because my old pastor would always say a, a text without a context is a pretext. And what that basically means, if you read the Bible, um, like any book or any letter, you just take like a sentence out of it, you may come to some wrong conclusions if you don't understand the context. So I, I want to cast this to you for a second. I want to back up just for a second and put this kind of where it goes. So Matthew is capturing these moments with Jesus. By the way, we just, we just found uh, people, humans, one of the, some of the oldest portions of Matthew, actually the oldest ever discovered, which is a cool fact. But Matthew collected these moments with Jesus, and there's a theme that's been developing in his book leading up to this moment. So he, it kind of starts here. He'd taken his closest disciples, Peter, John, and James, up on a mountain, and he displayed to them his glory. It's called the transfiguration. It absolutely blows my mind what it would be like. They essentially saw Jesus in a godlike state. Like they got to kind of see behind his humanity. And it was like uh, he, I mean, I think there was like a physical, powerful glow or something uh, like that. And they, and they saw next to him Moses and Elijah, who are two of the greatest leaders and people in, in history, their, their greatest national and spiritual leader, Moses, their greatest prophet or preacher, Elijah. And they saw them all together and they were listening to Jesus. And then they disappeared and only Jesus was left, which is deeply symbolic that Jesus has preeminence over them. And, um, and they heard a voice, which was the second time some of them had heard it from heaven saying, this is my son, except the first time when Jesus was baptized, the voice said, I am well pleased with him. This time it said, listen to him. Listen to him. So that's amazing. Matthew wasn't there. The one writing this actually wasn't there. He heard about it. Um, so clearly the, these disciples came back and told the others about it. And then Matthew tells us about an, another event. We don't know if it happened like right away, but in, in order, he's putting them in this order for a reason. Um, that they, after this, there is a boy with, with epilepsy. He's throwing himself into fires. He's having these seizures. And the disciples have been trying to throw an evil spirit out of him, and it's not working. They, they're trying stuff, and it's failing. And they bring, the, the, this child is brought to Jesus. Jesus delivers him. And the disciples ask, why couldn't we do that? And he, and he gave them a little lesson about, basically, you, don't, you, need, you need faith to do this. You need faith. in who? Well, this is coming after the transfiguration. They just saw the glorified Jesus who's preeminent over all their prophets. And you need faith in me. You need me. Then Jesus tells them he is going to die and raise from the dead. This is one of several times where he tells them he's, this is going to happen. Um, so they're supposed to listen to him. These are major moments. They're, they're supposed to listen to him. He can do what they cannot do. He is going to die and raise from the dead, he tells them. And then he's confronted by some tax collectors, and his disciples are beginning to think very highly of him now, and they have some expectations. They expect him to oppose the tax collectors and religious leaders. So these tax collectors come and they say something to him about paying the, tech, the temple tax. And his disciples are like, is he going to pay? Is he really, is he going to bow down to the crooked po political structure? And Jesus says to them, he says basically this, technically, you don't owe anybody anything, but let's not offend them. You know, go, ca go cast a line out into the, into the lake. And, they, and they're going... You're the weirdest teacher I've ever met. And they go and they, they, let's go fishing, you know. Like in the middle, you glorify yourself and now we're fishing. And uh, they, they throw the line in the lake and they get a fish. And when they're taking out the hook, there's a tax payment in gold in its mouth. And, uh, and they bring it back to him and he says, so that we don't offend them, uh, pay your taxes. <laughs> okay. That's an incredible miracle. That's full of meaning, though. Like, he's, he's the preeminent Jewish figure, but he's not going to offend a tax collector. 
He provides for them what they need. He provides the, the power to cast out the spirit that they don't have. This is, they're, they're, they're trying to track with this. Um, and then, just a little bit after this, or yeah, right after this, comes this section of Matthew 18. Um, and, but, but, uh, there's, there's just a little bit more. The disciples, maybe in light of seeing that Jesus is doing some amazing stuff, they start arguing. And they start arguing about who is the greatest. And we, we learn elsewhere that when they had this argument or one like it, they got their mom involved. And what does that mean? It means they're getting very emotional. When do you go get your mom? Um, you know, I'd, maybe their culture is slightly different than ours. But I don't know. I'm going to assume when you get your mom, you're getting emotional. Your stuff's starting to, you're like, you know, James and John, and they're like, Mom, you know he's never done his chores, and you know in the kingdom of God, I'm going to be the greatest. And Mom got involved. And so that happens, and then this is what Jesus does. Ember, I want you to come forward right now. Can you come up here? Yeah. Jesus does this. He brings up a kid. His disciples are fighting about who's the greatest. And he says, all right, everybody, to enter into the kingdom of God, you need to become like him. All right, you're good. Thanks. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, and that kid was, I probably should have kept him up here because then he, he, then the next thing he says, he says, if, and if you cause somebody like him to sin, It'd be better for you, not parallel, better. If I took a giant stone for crushing grain that needs to be pulled around by an oxen and tied it to your neck and chucked you into the sea, that'd be better for you than if you deceived this guy. And they're like, so which one of us is the greatest? Like, are we still talking about that or what? No, what are we talking? You know, and then he goes, and by the way, if, you, if your hand is tempting you to sin, chop it off. And if your eye is what's tempting you to sin, gouge it out. It'd be better for you to live without a hand or an eye than to face the fire of my wrath. And they go, they're like, so which one, which one of us is the greatest? Um, and then he says, and if your brother sins against you, what we've read tonight. Go and talk to him. If he doesn't listen, take somebody with you. If that doesn't work, grab the leaders of the church. And then he tells the parable of the unforgiving servant. Okay. What does that have to do with our feelings? A lot. Um, you know, what, what about this? What does it mean to be engaged in our temptations? your hand to cause you some, by the way, no disciple, there's no record of a disciple of Jesus ever chopping their hand off or gouging their eye out. They don't. But, but he's talking about like, what, what causes you to be engaged in your temptations? What, what's behind those temptations? Often the things you feel that you need, that you, that you need the most, that you need the most deeply. What fuels our arguments? James, who, who went up um, on the mountain and saw the transfiguration, later writes, what causes quarrels and fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. Our passions, our feelings, they're involved in all these, in these temptations, in our conflicts. Um, and often what guides us away from the childlike faith he was talking about when he brought up that little kid is it not our feelings toward God? The gift of childhood is to look at your parents and even to God with utter trust and, and just to believe without, without a doubt that there's, there's a power out there and that good things can happen to you and it's going to be okay, which is why all these kids, their first inkling was all the gratitude to God, right? And why John had to go, you know, sometimes life's hard. And they go, Oh, yeah, that's true. Childlike faith, they feel generally pretty positive toward God. And when we become unchildlike, our feelings toward God begin to change. 
Well, it's all tied together. We experience emotions. We all do. It's part of being human. We cannot deny it or else we try to become shiny, happy people. And then you get a Netflix show about all the emotions you experience after you fail. You can watch it. Um, so in a world where there are fistfights in the street, we want to be different in the church. Um, how do we do it? I'm telling you, it's not by not experiencing emotion. That is not the path. It's okay to experience emotion. Um, I mentioned earlier the Bible captures conflicts like the disciples arguing about who's the greatest. It's all over the Bible. You might say, well, that was before they understood what Jesus was about or before the Holy Spirit. But if you look in the book of Acts, it's also rough. Um, the, the book of Acts, there's all sorts of conflicts. In the Jerusalem council, the elders have to intervene because other people can't decide. Um, and then after after the Jerusalem council where there's this kind of intervention, the two kind of two of the most important people in the church, Paul and Barnabas, right after that moment when there's this great clarity about a big decision in the church, Paul and Barnabas get in kind of a petty fight um, and, and, it, and get this, get this fight. Like think about how not a big of a deal this one seems to be. Um, Paul and Barnabas um, had an idea together. Let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they're doing. This is like, they're, they're like, let's send some thank you cards. Let's, let's do something, like, let's just check in on people. How about some follow-up? Let's, let's email them and see how they're doing. This is like, how is this a conflictual moment, right? Let's go check in and see how they're doing. Um, and Barnabas says, I'm beginning to paraphrase because it's fun, Barnabas goes, hey, I have an idea. Let's take my buddy, John Mark. And Paul's like, I don't like that guy. Because remember how he came with us before and in, this, and in Pamphylia, he like left. That was really inconvenient. And by the way, he took all the toast and like, okay, my paraphrase has gone too far. But he says he withdrew from us in Pamphylia um, and, and he left us with a lot of work to do. And it says there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from another. Guys, they didn't work together for years. They were going to go check in on their friends. One of them wanted to like look over a past mistake of somebody. Paul did not. He thought that was going to be a major inconvenience. They got in such a big disagreement. I, I like the kind of historic, um, it is a little bit blurry, but the, some of these old, this was painted in the 1500s. Like, we don't do this anymore. We don't go, this is church history. They're all fighting. Look, it's nuts. They don't even have clothes on. They're fighting. <laughs> we, like, we're like, downplay that. Like, you know, we don't, we don't do it. But that happens. It's all throughout the Bible. It's in our history. Um, it's in our Bibles. And uh, people don't always get along, and it causes, it causes division. And I guarantee you there was pain and emotion all wrapped up in this. And, and I have a lot of stories like this. I'm sure you do too. Many of them with other Christians. And I don't think it's super helpful to act like we don't. The Bible doesn't hide the facts. And, and I don't think we need to hide the facts that we have feelings. We have feelings about events. We have feelings about people. Um, we, we are mad. We are hurt sometimes. And we struggle with what to do because we are human. And But, but if it was just that, that, wouldn't, that would feel kind of like a weak argument to me. But God gets angry. That, that's another layer of this. Which means, as we know intuitively, that actually we're supposed to get angry about certain things. In the Old Testament, there's around 375 times that the word for anger is connected to an action of God, that God is doing X because he's angry. And you may say, well, yeah, that's, the Old Testament was kind of wild. Um, I've read some of that before. It's dicey. But then Jesus came, and there's the grace, and no more of that stuff. Well, Jesus, he did flip the tables in the temple, and he wasn't calm. I don't think he was like, laid them down and, you know, set them down. I was like, do you see why I laid this down? <laughs> it's because you're doing the wrong thing. Do you understand why I laid the table over? And they went, oh, yeah, it was very instructive. No, he, he flips. The, you know, he goes into there, he flips the tables. Um, but that's not even the deepest expression of his anger in the Bible. Jesus, and this is veiled in, in English um, and in our religious Im imagery, but I'm going to show it to you. This is the way we get it in religious Im imagery. 
when Lazarus died. See, this is another one of those like laying the table down moments. This is how we imagine it. Lazarus died and Jesus comes and he's got the hand like this, right? He goes, arise. (laughs) And he's like, I am bitter within me. Ah, It's okay. Arise. That's sort of how we read it. But in the Bible, um, it says he was deeply moved and then he wept. And so in case you just think this is my idea, B.B. Warfield, this is a Princeton theologian. This is the way he describes the word our English translation translates as deeply moved. He translates it. He said it would be better expressed as irrepressible anger. Irrepressible. That's, if you get into like the, the moment and how Jewish people grieved and the word in Greek, irrepressible anger before he wept. He did both. Um, Jesus later weeps over Jerusalem because of their rejection of him. He's moved with compassion. He feels suffering. He feels emotion. And he knows who he is. And he still feels. And it's okay to feel emotion. Christians do too. So sometimes, though, it, it, it is a problem, right? We know this. So, so here's... I wish I could spend some more time here, but I'm going to blow through some scenarios, and I know I will miss some. But it's a problem when our feelings drive us. It's problematic when our feelings are controlling us. I said earlier that God and Jesus gets angry, right? I just showed that. But the Bible clearly uh, describes that God is slow to anger. Exodus 34.6 is a key moment in history. Here God, God's about to deliver to Moses his law that kind of expresses what his character is and how people should respond to his character. And before he delivers the law, he he displays his character. He explains his character to Moses by declaring his name. And this is what he says. It says, The Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious. That's like one slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but by no means will clear the guilty. There's so much beautiful complexity to all that, but I want to just focus on slow to anger. Slow to anger. And therefore, he is gracious and abounding in love, and he forgives, yet he's not unjust. And that becomes formative for God's people. You can flash forward into the Proverbs. Proverbs 14, 29 says, Whoever is slow to anger has great understanding, but he who has a hasty temper exalts folly. That's drawing from that characteristic of God and applying it to us. It's wisdom because it's of God. Here's a New Testament teaching in James in light of the work of Jesus. It says, Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of people does not produce the righteousness or justice of God. What James is saying is you don't get justice by expressing your anger. You can have anger, but you're not going to get justice by its expression. God is not slow to anger because he's avoiding anger. And I think it's important to know, like the more junk you've been through in your life, by the way, if you've been hurt, the the angry God thing is usually less troublesome to you because you understand being angry at somebody. Um, I think some of the most deeply wounded people I've known have said to me, if God's not angry, I'm not interested. Because if he's not angry at the one who hurt me, at the people who hurt me at all, then he's, he has nothing to say to me, right? But he's slow to anger because he's merciful, gracious, and loving. He understands how hard it is for people to work through their stuff. And he's more patient with us than we could ever be of other people, but he's our pattern. Our emotions are problematic when they drive us and override the call we have to patient love, which is tier one, you know, image of God. They're also a problem when we stop taking relational risks. I I mentioned the choya before, and imagine you take a hike or you, you know, you're an idiot like me and you hit the, the choya with the baseball bat. Um, and you, so you, you get hurt, right? You get hurt out there and you go, I am never going outdoors again. I'm never going to Saguaro National Park again. I'm never going out there. It hurts out there. I, you get hurt out there. I'm never going out there again. 
that would be a tragedy because there's so much beauty out there, right? The pain isn't to keep you out of the outdoors. The pain is to teach you to look where you're going, right? We do the same thing emotionally. I think sometimes we experience anger, hurt, or pain. I'm never going there again. And we have to fight against that because there's a lot of beauty in there. I think that's why a lot of us don't go to church anymore or a lot of people don't go to church or don't engage with their family or whatever. Like, I get it. It's hard. Like, you go back in there with people. You go back into business. You do whatever. You go back in. It could hurt. But there's a lot of beauty out there. And I don't think that we're supposed to, it's just like the height. You, don't, you wouldn't stop hiking because you had a bad experience. You shouldn't. Get back out there. Get back out there in relationships. They are worth it. Um, I think one of our greatest temptations is to distrust that, that our fear can be overridden by God. So yeah, Larry Crabb, when um, he, he's a psychologist, theologian, but he, he looks at actually the initial tempta- you know, temptation moment of Adam and Eve and he suggests, and I think he's onto something here, that one of the, the reasons for the fall is not just Eve said, like, that apple looks delicious, or was like, you know what, I don't trust God. It, that was part of it. But on the other side was a husband who was afraid to say something she didn't want to hear right now. Why? Conflict. Like, God had delivered the law, actually, to Adam, so he's going to go, hey, honey, this isn't worth it. He didn't say a word. Um, anyway, Larry Crabb, whole book on it called uh, The Silence of Adam back in the day. But avoiding that chaos, not, not going out there where it could hurt, that, that's not good. We don't want to do that. Another way our emotions can be a problem is when they're aimed at a person primarily and not the darkness that's impacting them. Um, in when I do premarital counseling, there's a section in uh, Tim Keller's book on marriage about the God-shaped hole, and, and that everybody's got a God-shaped hole that the other person just can't fill, and that can be gravely uh, disappointing. And the temptation is to get angry at the person that can't fulfill you, to point at them and say, you said you would, you told me you'd be here for me. I trust, you know, and it, and it can be very tempting to do that. Look at the person and move from just disappointment to anger. And what Keller is saying is that that hole is God-shaped. We can't fill it. The, we are broken because of the impact of sin. So is the other person. You can never fill a God-shaped hole. Even if you were perfect, you wouldn't be enough. Taking that out of a, just a marriage context, how in the world would we ever do what Jesus commanded us to do to love our enemies. Um, Keller, same principle, did a sermon after 9-11. Can you imagine that? Um, 9-11 in New York City, the next Sunday, preaching. Um, You can go listen to it. He actually uses the uh, Lazarus tomb anger moment in that sermon, and it's really, really helpful because he said the temptation you're going to have is to hate Muslim people. You're going to think they're all the same. You're going to look at them and think they're, they're all trying to hurt you. And the reason that you're, you're going to do that is because you're going to take it out on people and not the brokenness, not the darkness that's impacting them. You have to aim your anger. It's ang- the anger is real. You, how, how are you not angry at all the deaths? I was in a memoir class with a lady who lived through the World Trade Center. I was reading her accounts. How would you not be angry? You have to be. But at what? At what? And he said... And he brings up this, this moment of Jesus at the tomb. And the way he described that irrepressible anger was that Jesus, like, again, he's going, trying to get to the bottom and the, like in the Jewish context and the wailing at the grave. And he said it was like, like a primal scream, but who's it aimed at? At the one who's causing death. Mary and Martha, when he comes up, to them, they said, if you'd been here, our brother wouldn't have died. They're aiming it at Jesus. They don't get that he's God. They're aiming it at another person. If you'd not failed, then this wouldn't have happened. And Jesus aims his primal, irrepressible anger at the darkness that impacts us, not at Mary and Martha. And then he overcomes death.
right? So it's a problem when our feelings drive us, when they keep us from taking relational risks or trusting God, when, they aim us, when, they, when they're aimed at people and not the darkness, and when we wallow in them and harbor unforgiveness. So what do we do? Um, Ephesians 5, I'm going to read a little piece here because it, it gives us a picture of this, you know, people, us, it's a description of people who trust God, who are being reformed into the image of God and being restored and how they're supposed to act toward each other. And it says this, uh, put away falsehood. Let each of you speak the truth to your neighbor for we're members of one another. That's like members, like body parts, like we all belong together. Be angry, be angry, and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Give no opportunity to the devil, the darkness, right? Let the thief no longer steal, but labor, doing honest work with his hands, so he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, only such as good for building up and fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. I want to zoom in because I'm focusing on anger as our example here on be angry but do not sin. Have you ever read that? I think sometimes we read that and we go, what that, the, the, the equal to that is my mom looking at me and saying, stop it. Just stop it. You know? You're angry? Stop. Okay. But I'm still angry, right? I'm just stopping something. Um, do not let the sun go down on your anger. Um, so the common understanding of, of something like this is resolve your disputes before bedtime. And I was, I was thinking about that. And then, um, well, you know, here's the first thing I thought of. John and I had to have some difficult conversations over a slice of pie in El Paso. And um, we were talking about things that happened weeks before, even months. So did we fail the passage? Because we didn't get it done before bedtime. Um, some of it, you know, we, we needed what happened, uh, what, what we're going to be discussing next week. We needed some outside involvement. We needed to hear from others. We needed some wisdom. I think we needed to think things through and pray and do some examining. So do you follow the passage or not, right? It turns out with just a little digging that this was not an original biblical phrase. This was like a common expression in their time. The Pythagoreans um, used something similar. It has something of a double meaning. It can mean, it can mean address something as soon as possible. It can mean that. But it often uh, meant something more like, don't harbor anger and let it like marinate and turn into malice before you have a chance to resolve it, meaning usually your death. Um, like the idea of the sun going down was often like the sun going down on your life. And, and it's common at death for people. One of, the, one of the big things that happen when people are dying and they know they're going to die is they go and they try to reconcile. They try to right some wrongs. It, it's always been this way. It is a natural thing you do when you realize my life might be over. Um, the double meaning here is helpful when you think you don't know when that day is going to be, so you probably don't want to put it off till you're 95 um, when your sun will set. But be thinking about, you know, you, you only have so much time. Um, and before the sun sets, you, you really want to get after this stuff. You really want to reconcile. You do. Um, so maybe that's today. And maybe you need to process a little bit. Um, it's not like a cut and dry little rule. It's more of this guiding principle for life. Like don't let your anger cross the horizon of your life before it's resolved. Sometimes you might have to put in some work to get there, but don't, don't let your anger cross the horizon of your life. So what's it going to take to do that? Um, the word is forgiveness. That's what comes up in Matthew. That's what comes up in Ephesians. And forgiveness is not so simple as saying, uh, it's okay, dude, I'll try not to do it again. And the person goes, hey, we all make mistakes. You know, That's actually not forgiveness at all. Um, the things that push us to the point of deep emotion 
do so at a significant cost. And at the heart of the word forgiveness is the idea of debt. So you're, you're driving, you go over to Scott at Premier Auto Center, you get in the nickel pickle sale, right? And you get your nicer, newer car, and um, you're really happy about it, and, uh, there's, and you're driving it home, and you've got the kid texting and driving behind you, and wham, hits you hard, and, and you get out in your brand new car, the whole back end is busted up, and you get out, and the kid goes, I am so sorry. What do you say? Well, I hope you don't punch him in the face, right? I hope you say, yeah. Uh, okay, if I could go ahead and see your insurance card. Why? Because this is going to cost something. And he even needs to understand that it's going to cost something, right? Like people don't do well in the world when they don't realize the impact of their choices, right? We kind of know that. Um, it's going to cost something. Why? Because damage was done. Um, restitution is a good thing. It's not actually anti-forgiveness. And for people need to, to grow, they need to understand the cost. Um, a kid backed into me at Abby's school. He, <laughs> he dropped off his little brother. Everybody pulls forward in this scenario, but he didn't. He just threw it in reverse and boom, right into me. And I was like, cool. My car was not really that bad. But I, I was thinking about it, and this kid, he's... 16, I thought, you know, I'm not going to like come down on him too hard, but I know his dad. So I called his dad and I said, hey, what do you think? Um, I'm wondering if your kid needs to put a little skin in the game to understand what he did to my truck. You know, like, I'd like him to be a good driver. I'd like, you know, and the dad was like, you know, yeah, I'd like him to understand, like, maybe we don't have to jack up his insurance record or whatever. And I said, hey, I'd love to not let that happen. And he goes, you know what? I think he could, he could drum up a hundred bucks. And I said, you know what? I like that. That's good. Um, I wanted him to, to think about there's, there's a cost. Uh, forgiveness is extremely complex because it doesn't deny the cost. It may even involve some restitution, but forgiveness is the steadfast commitment to not keep making someone pay, to, uh, to declare the debt to be paid and this is even emotionally, and then to steadfastly commit to putting it to bed. It's over. It's not going to come back, the debt. And, and always, some of the debt is going to need to be absorbed. Think about that. Like, what's the ultimate, you know, payment of a debt? Like, the death penalty, right? Um, does that cover the cost? Does it? Someone's killed your friend, your brother. They get the death penalty. Is it even Stephen? No, because you don't have your friend back. And you went through all this emotional pain. You, it's not even Stephen at all. A cost is absorbed, right? Even in that case, even with the, you know, getting the hundred bucks from the kid, like I had to go check out my car. It took all this time. It was a hassle. I had to call the dad. Like, I don't know, did a hundred bucks cover it? No, it, it doesn't that you always have to absorb some of the debt to forgive. So we, uh, we address the issues, we offer forgiveness. That's where Ephesians 5 lands. And after um, Matthew 18, the story that Jesus tells about these two servants, um, these things are hard to move into. So I, uh, I wanna, what, what to expect when you're expecting. You guys have been very patient. I'll, I'll end this soon. Um, when you move into conflict with people, which is what we're being called to do in Matthew 18, expect humility and, you know, accidental humility because God's at work in everybody. One of the best books I've ever read as a pastor, I thought I was reading about raising teenage kids several years ago. It's called, a book called Age of Opportunity. And I read it and I was like, this is about being alive. This book's just about being a person. Because it basically, it says this, it says, you know, the teenage years are tough. You know, people are going to show a lot of emotion. There's going to be some hard times. And uh, you can do one of two things. You can be really mad about that. Or you can see God's leading this person through some thought processes, and you can be a part of it. And then Paul Tripp, the author, goes, and guess what? Uh, God's at work in you, parents. You, pastor. You, friend. Um, 
And if you're not enjoying it, there's probably some issues God's trying to work on in you. So when you walk into humility or when you walk into conflict, um, I, I would really not expect to you know, exit the other side going, I am 100% vindicated because I am the best. It won't. You'll, you'll, see, you'll see your own heart. And that's good. I think that's part of why God calls us into this, why Jesus calls us into this. Like, this is good. We actually need this. God is at work. It's scary. But God is at work. So I, I think we should expect some self-reflection and dealing with some uh, humility. Paul in Ephesians starts off with saying, we are members of one another. There's a very one another thing going on. So when you forgive there's going to be some one another. Jesus' parable calls for some self-reflection to say, you know, Peter's saying, how often do I forgive? And the parable is about how much do you need to be forgiven? That's, that's what it comes back to. So expect to learn humility. Expect for it to be rocky. This is really hard stuff, and our feelings are going to have us all off kilter. If we expect people to be at, our, at their best, we fool ourselves. Um, here's a question for the Christians in the room. Did God find and forgive you when you were at your best? Believers know this. God doesn't reserve his grace for people who get the process right. God doesn't reserve his grace for people who've kind of figured things out and gone, hey, God, I was reading the Bible. I saw all the 600 laws. I've been doing all of them now. So, we good? No, that's not how it goes, right? We come to God in this state. I am becoming aware that I'm really not doing okay. Will you receive me? And the answer is, I've been waiting to hear that. Yes. And I'll walk with you through all of it as you figure this out, right? God offers forgiveness while we're sinners. So how can we hinge our forgiveness of another person on their ability to get the process right? That's not how it worked for us. Forgiveness will always include the one forgiving, absorbing some of the debt. It's the only way to forgive another broken person. How do we get the power to offer that kind of forgiveness? We have to see that our forgiveness came at a great cost to Jesus. Ephesians 5 says, forgive as God forgave us in Jesus. Forgive as God in Christ forgave you. Jesus' parable of the servant is illustrating this. That's why I read it after that Matthew 18 reconciliation passage. The first servant's debt, and we, don't, we miss this again in English, it's a bummer, is insane. Um, I, I did the little Googled it today. The equivalent today is almost $4 billion. So at the time, that is actually 200, 000, or 200 lifetimes worth of servant wage. So it's, it's like, or sorry, 200,000 lifetimes. So the a servant's wage, Jesus kind of took it and he blew it up to 100,000, which is like, okay, that's never going to happen. And then he doubled it. Servant's wage over a lifetime, blown up by $100,000, let's double it. It's just nuts. It's a number that's insane. Like where you look at it and you're like, uh, what? Like billionaire? Like, yeah, that's your debt? Okay, you're never going to pay it off. That's what you're supposed to think. There's no way. And then the, the, the servant that he won't forgive owes him about a month of a servant's wage. So in comparison, 200,000 lifetimes versus a month. That's, Jesus made it that drastic. And what he's trying to say is you can't, you can't calculate the debt you owe for all the wrongs you've done to people and to God. Like, it's so incalculable, you're not going to get it. You're not even going to figure it out. But trust me, it's big. It's real big. So then when the person you, you're not sure you want to forgive, I think Peter probably has in mind like the kind of selfish guy who wants to be first. You know, he's looking at these other disciples and he's like, yeah, like they're totally lame wanting to be first in the kingdom. How many times do I forgive like my dingbat fellow disciples like that? And Jesus goes, i tell you a story. And, and Peter's going to see himself as the servant with the giant debt. And of course, he's going to be like, hey, well, come on, I'm not that bad. And the reason it's so giant is I think Jesus is saying, You're not, you can't even calculate it. You have no idea. And you can't forgive somebody because they're selfish. 
That's like a month's wages compared to what you owe. We have to understand how costly it was for Jesus to forgive us. If we don't understand that, we're not going to be able to offer it. If you're an unforgiving person, you don't see it. Seeing it frees us up to be merciful. And finally, this is, this is kind of what I, the, the, the capstone of this thing. The watching world, people are punching, them, punching each other in the face out there. Um, it's not that we're better than them. It's not that. It's that we have a great resource in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, to see how deeply we are forgiven and to give us the strength to move into these complex relationships and keep working on it. That's the difference. And that speaks volumes. That's what people do not know how to do. And they don't have the resources. So if we go around hiding our problems, we are not evangelizing. If we vent our problems, we are also not evangelizing. But if we are honest about our brokenness and the way God is at work in our community, we're probably doing some of the best evangelism we've ever done. That's what the Bible does. It tells us the truth. Um, we're able to move toward each other and forgive and reconcile because we have a Savior who paid the ultimate cost. And that's why at the center of our worship is a Savior who laid his life down, right? He invites his disciples to the table, and uh, these disciples are, are a mess. You know, they're the ones that argued about who's the greatest, and Peter was definitely looking for an answer like, can I forgive somebody three times and then be done? Um, and he got the giant answer. These, these people... Um, they, they struggle. They're, they're not faithful to Jesus, right? They all run off. They don't understand his message. They deny him. They betray him. And Jesus sits down uh, to dinner with them, and he says, this is my body broken for you. Um, this is my body shed for your forgiveness. What he, he's trying to say is, for me to die, I'm God. It's, it's, an, it's a debt you could never calculate even if you tried, but I've done it. And then you're sent out from that table out into the world to be a witness. And what does that mean? Offer what you've been given. Um, my body broken for you, my blood shed for you. So the invitation is to come and receive, be transformed, and go out as agents of reconciliation.